Um, we are getting back into the Apostles' Creed. So, as you know, through the summer series, we have been just sort of expositing and slowly going through the Apostles' Creed. Um, just as a little bit of a background to sort of let you get some mental traction back, I'll give a little uh, overview of the Apostles' Creed. Um, this is one of several creeds that we would call ecumenical creeds. Um, these are largely approved of and, and used by the entire church, uh, including Protestants, which we would fall into that group, uh, Roman Catholics, and uh, Eastern Orthodox denominations and sects. Um, the Apostles' Creed is definitely one of those, it's, it's thought to be the oldest. Um, tradition has it, tradition has it, that the Apostles' Creed was written by the Apostles on the day of Pentecost. Um, and at one point there were 12 clauses and each Apostle wrote a clause. Uh, I don't know if there's truth to that or not, but I think the earliest extant version of it we have is like 215 A.D., um, and then it's been used ever since in the church. Um, there are other creeds, ancient creeds, that we would really pay attention to and we'd be wise to pay attention to. One is the Nicene Creed, um, which is it's an odd name because it technically was not written in Nicaea. It was written in uh, Constantinople and then later modified by the Western Church. But that's the Nicene Creed focuses on the Trinity, articulation of the Trinity. Has anyone heard of the Nicene Creed? All right takes us back. There's the Creed of Chalcedon, which focuses on mainly Christological issues, and that's, uh, I think, 451 AD. And then there's the Athanasian Creed, um, definitely the most technical and full-blown of the creeds. Again, the early creeds tended to focus on the person of God and the person of Christ, but the Athanasian Creed is another one. Very long. Um, in fact, if we were going to go through that creed, we'd be I don't know, maybe two years? I don't know. I'm not sure. It's pretty long, though. It's pretty long. I don't know if you guys would have that. Um, you know, there is a Trinitarian structure to this Apostles' Creed. Um, but again, one of the reasons we needed the other creeds is because there, it does, it's very biblical, but uh, the, other, the other creeds do, do offer a certain uh, technical specificity that the other ones don't have, or that the Apostles' Creed um, has, does not have. But here is the Apostles' Creed. Um, I don't know if you can read this. I'm going to read it. I'll read it. Okay. I believe in God the Father, Almighty, Creator of heaven and earth, I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. He suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. And then a clause that is much contended and argued over, well, not a whole lot, but he descended into hell. Um, was anyone here when, I think Jeff treated this, right? And he took the Abraham's bosom interpretation. Boo! And you know, he, did Jeff go the interpretation that Jesus Christ actually went into hell and extracted out? Who, who was here this summer? Okay. This is going to be long, and you're actually making me a little mad, so. <laughs> I'm just, what? 
Oh, someone, someone totally t said that was his position. I was like, huh, that's interesting. Sometimes, you know, Jeff, uh, you, you think he's, he should zig, but he does zag. And, you know. That's all right. He descended. Uh, I mean, actually, my, I think my personal position, position on that is if it does belong in the creed, it probably speaks to Christ experiencing hell on the cross um, uh, me uh, mentally and emotionally as opposed to actually going down there. But he, he ascended to heaven and is seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From there, he will come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. The bold parts are what we're going to focus on next week, or this week. And then next week, uh, we're going we're to be covering the forgiveness of sins. Our good friend, Chester Wakefield, he's the lead uh, teaching elder from Forest Hills Bible Chapel. He'll come in. He's wonderful. You'll enjoy him. And then, like I said, the anchor, Craig, is going to finish her off, right? That is the plan. Okay. Amen. All right. What? Just the amen part. Yeah, just the amen part, indeed. 40-minute dissertation on what does amen mean and why. I would, I would, go, I would pay money to see that, Craig. <laughs> What's that? World War II. World War II. Yes! Yes, I like the mockery out of the mouth of the children, huh? Yeah, yeah. I, I have no opening story, so you can't do anything to me. So, uh, But we're going to focus on, I believe, the Holy Catholic, in the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints. That's what we're doing today. All right, that's all. So, um, how, this is how I plan to do this. I've broken this, this, I believe, in the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints. I've broken it down into elements. I will define each element. I will define one element, apply that element, try to get in a humorous anecdote or some joke that will probably not land, and then I'll move on to defining another element, apply, start getting sweaty because no one's laughing, and... It'll, it'll be this whole awkward thing, and it'll be great. And we'll learn a lot, or maybe you won't. But it'll be over, though, so. That's not encouraging. I need to... I have too much confidence after the first one, so now I'm like... Anyway, credo. I believe. Creed, I mean, that's from the Latin credo. I believe. Literally, I believe. And so we shortened creed. So, um... So what we're going to do, again, is break these down. So let's, let's talk about faith or belief. So if the demons believe, do they not? In Jesus Christ, they believe in him. But not the same belief that we have, right? Because demons aren't saved. So what sort of the, the, the term belief has a lot of different senses. So let me get philosophical on you for a second. The belief we're talking about is not only cognitive or intellectual. I mean, that's the, that's the faith that the demons have, or the beliefs that the demons have. They know that Jesus Christ is Lord and Savior. But it does not, but it does not affect them on an effective level. It does nothing to their emotions other than maybe rage or anger. 
and it doesn't move their will in a positive direction. But when we talk about Christian faith, we're talking about not only the cognitive, like we believe this is the truth, like on a cognitive level, but also it should start working on our emotions and our desires, the affective level. But then also as well, it should start, I mean, there should be a corresponding um, positive movement of the will, the volitional movement. And you probably know plenty, plenty of uh, the so-called nominal Christians. You know what these are? Nominal Christians, they're not really. They say they are. And actually, if you would say, hey, um, you know, are you a Christian? They're like, sure. And, you know, I, I have a Bible at home. You know, uh, I've, I've learned this, this uh, term from uh, students at uh, Cornerstone. Uh, Christers. Have you heard of Christers? And I was like, what's Christers? It's like a conflation of Christmas and Easter. So those... Just in case I ever preach this again, uh, X on that one. Um, but yeah, the, so there's not a lot of Christians out there. It doesn't really make any difference. They, they will tell you that, they, that they're, they're Christian, they're saved, but it really makes no impact on them. And that's kind of frightening. It's kind of frightening. Um, do you know, um, like I'm, I'm getting older, so like I start losing, the terminology doesn't always translate. But you know what a busboy is? Bus person? Bus person. Maybe that. Like you clean up the tables. Like you clean the... It's not all the waiters and waitresses. They, um, I would go in, I would put stuff in a bin, wipe the table down, and then be on my way, and I'd hide in the corner getting ready for spills or whatnot. But I was a chatter. I would talk a lot. And there was this one guy who was like two years younger than me, and it was really, I was watching this weird metamorphosis. Um, he was always a, he was always a, a, a soft-spoken guy, really, really good personality, though. And we were talking, he was simultaneously, he had two groups of friends. One, sort of a, an experimenting with drug, hard-partying group of friends. And he had a group of friends that were going actually to my church, um, the, the chapel in Akron, and uh, where Newt Larson was pastor, and so he was going. I mean, he was like committed to both these groups, and so I asked him one day. You know, we're we're chatting, and I said, "So, how do you like church?" And he's like, "I like it." And I said, "Yeah," and he's been going regularly. And I said, "Do you understand it?" Because he wasn't raised. He wasn't raised in a Christian home. He said, "Yeah." I said, do you understand what the gospel is? Newt Larson was great at giving a gospel proclamation. At the, I mean, no matter what he was talking about, it, it came to a gospel proclamation and an opportunity to respond to the gospel. And my buddy, he said, yep, I understand. And I said, what is it? And he explained that we can't get to heaven on our own works. You have to, put your, you have to repent and put your faith in Jesus Christ for eternal salvation. He said something to that effect. I was like, oh, yeah. I said, do you believe that? And he said, yeah. And I said, have you prayed to dedicate your life to Christ yet? And he said, no. And I said, do you want to do that after work? And he said, no. And I said, what? 
And he, was, he said, my life's going really well right now. I, I, I'm kind of having fun. I want to see how this all plays out. Maybe later. And I was like floored. I mean, just from an intellectual level. Like, if you believe that. I mean, 50 years of doing whatever your flesh wants to do. You know, 50 more years versus infinity with God. Come on. There's no, I mean, that's just illogical. But I was terrified. I was terrified for him. But that's what, that, that's, that's an example of someone who has just merely cognitive. They are a nominal Christian or, I mean, he, would, he wouldn't even claim to be a Christian. But true belief should yield into right knowing, you know, orthodoxy. It should, it should feed into how we feel, our emotions towards God, um, and also should change our actions. But in short, the I believe here not only indicates a claim, but entails a commitment. So you're not only saying, I'm going to know or understand in this way. You're, going to say, you're, you're committing to um, having the Holy Spirit work through you and to, to rightly align your desires, your emotions, and also you're ready to act. This is a commitment also to act. And so that's going to play throughout as we break this, pat, this uh, little excerpt down. There's not only a claim that we're making, and I'm going to help, we're going to help you understand the claim, but we're also going to help, help you understand there is a correspond, there's corresponding commitments. If you're, if you're trying to say this legitimately, like you do believe this, you believe in the Holy Catholic Church, then there are um, corresponding commitments as well. So let us look at the Catholic Church. The Catholic Church. So just the term church has a myriad of different senses, right? We have the church building, like I'm going to church while no one's there, like on a, you know, uh, like a, a Monday morning, like no one's there, but you're saying, oh, I'm driving up to the church. You mean the church building. Oh, I was, I was with the church family. We mean, like, you could mean Forest Hills Baptist Church at this moment in time. Or sometimes on Charter Day, which is coming up, which is... Um, are you getting a... Do you have a video? Are we doing the video? I love that video. Yeah. Thank you. Um, we're going to go from... You know, you could be talking about Forest Hills Baptist Church from its inception all the way up to now and into the, pre- into the future. I mean, you could be talking about the GARB, the G-A-R-B-C of which we are a part right now. Or you can be talking about the G-A-R-B-C from its inception into the, through now into the future. I mean, there's just so many senses of the term church. I mean, we, we, we run that, um, we fall into that a lot in, in, in theology. There's just different senses. But what Catholic church means here is the universal church. Catholic does not mean Roman Catholic. Um, Catholic means universal. Right? So this is not a proclamation of the Roman Catholic Church. And I, I actually think we should probably be in the practice of, when we talk about Roman Catholics, calling them Roman Catholics as opposed to Catholics. Because uh, Catholic is a term that applies to all of us. 
So the universal church, this is what the Catholic church means. This is the church, this is the body of all believers, past, present, future, regardless of place. So this is the body of the elect unto salvation to Jesus Christ, past, present, and future. The universal church. We believe in the universal church. That's kind of weird if you think about it. But I'm going to, there's, I think there's some applications and implications of believing in the Catholic Church. So uh, right here I'm writing, I'm suggesting we should appreciate the perpetual remnant and the great cloud of witnesses of which we will one day be a part. So, um, first, perpetual remnant of the church. What is that? Well, one of my favorite passages is 1 1 Kings 19. Elijah is hiding out in a cave. And God's like, what are you doing? And Elijah thinks that he is the only believer left. He's like, I'm it. I'm I'm not hiding. I'm, I'm hiding in the cave and not going about your work because I am the last believer. I'm the last one. If I get killed, you don't have any followers anymore. So I'm going to pick up actually in Romans chapter 11, verse 1. Um, You know, you could, if you want, you can peruse 1 Kings 19. I'm not going to spend a whole lot of time on this, but I'm going to read from from Romans 11, chapter 1, or verse 1, and I'm going to just read until verse 6, but in that he sort of encapsulates what's going on in 1 Kings 19 and how it applies to the church. So Paul writes, I ask then, has God rejected his people? By no means. For I myself am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, a member of the tribe of Benjamin. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. Do you not know what the scripture says of Elijah, how he appeals to God against Israel? Lord, they have killed, they have killed your prophets, they have demolished your altars, and I alone am left, and they seek my life. But what is God's reply to him? I have kept for, my, I have kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. So again, Elijah thinks he's alone, and God says, no, there's 7,000 more that I have kept for myself. So too, at the present time, there is a remnant chosen by grace. But if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. So I think I I would argue from this passage and from 1 Kings 19, we are, it seems as though we're promised a remnant throughout history. Every point in history, there has been at least a group, a perduring group of believers. So a few points of application for this. I think you should be encouraged that you're not left alone. I mean, not only do we have the people here in this, in this uh, church body, but also, I mean, there's pl- this is one of my favorite things when we go out on vacation or, or we have to travel. Finding a local church, you know, of, you know, as similar beliefs as I can find, I go there, it's just wonderful. You're, you go and you're encouraged that the, you know, there are other sane, solid congregations out there. Right? And, and while we ought to guard doctrine, 
we ought to guard practice as we understand it. There are still brothers and sisters outside of the GARBC, right? Um, you know, you can, you can share good handshakes and, and knowing, knowing smiles with uh, brothers and sisters who practice baptism at a different time, in a different way. There's, you know, there's, there's a, we have brothers and sisters in Christ who, you know, they, they would, they emphasize practicing of the miraculous gifts, but they defend the gospel and they are, they're, um, you know, they're Trinitarian and they believe in the, the, the person of Christ and the penal substitutionary atonement and all that. But again, brothers and sisters, we just have a, some disagreements on some different areas. But they should be encouraging as well. I mean, I'm, I'm friends with elders from people that couldn't be members here just because their beliefs in baptism or something. But I, I mean, I count them as brothers and sisters. Also, an appreciation for the great cloud of witnesses. So what is the great cloud of witnesses? Um, I'm going to read from Hebrews chapter 12, verse 1. And then after verse 2, I'm going to jump down to verse 18. Um, and I'm not going to, I'll probably forget to tell you. So I'm just letting you know now. Therefore, and he, you know, in, in Hebrews chapter 11, he had talked, of, this is sort of the, uh, the faith hall of fame, as it were, when he's talking about all these wonderful believers. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. 18. For you have not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and the tempest, and the sound of a trumpet and a voice of those, and a voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further message be spoken to them. For they cannot endure the order that was given. If even a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. But you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festal gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and the spirits of the righteous made perfect. And to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word, than the blood of Abel. So again, we should be encouraged about those who are around us in this room, those that are downstairs. When you go, when you go on vacation, you go to, to um, like-minded and like-hearted churches. That should be encouragement. That you should be an encouragement to them as well. But with all this encouragement around us, there's still, there's still a sense that sometimes the world almost drowns that encouragement out. Yet we have another piece of encouragement, that there is this great cloud of witnesses. Um, brothers and sisters in Christ, from this church even, that have led the faithful life. And they now stand in the presence of Christ, and somehow they are aware of what's going on. And it almost portrays in, in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 1 through 2, that they cheer us on, the great cloud of witnesses. 
And while we may be really stressed out at times and very fearful, they're not. They made it through. I mean, there's, there, you know, hell, where is your victory? Death, is your, where is your sting? That's, that's them. That's an encouragement. And, you know, we don't get to observe them. Jesus Christ is our only mediator. But somehow, they're, they're, they, get to, they get to witness what is going on. But again, we look to Christ. We, can't, we, are, we look to Christ to be, to be an example, but we also think of the, those wonderful people, um, our loved ones who, and brothers and sisters of Christ who we've never met, that surround us in the great cloud of witnesses. So you will also be one day in that great cloud, unless Christ returns soon. So mind your time on earth. Remember that your generation impacts the ones that uh, come after it and go before it. And also, don't worry about being great. Worry about being good. I think the former probably gets us into a lot of trouble. Holy, 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 holy. Definitions of holy. This has a sense of being marked off, separate, withdrawn from ordinary use. Right? So, well, that's the definition, but what's, what's the theological implication? Um, you may be a part of it, that is the church, but it is God's church and for his purposes. Right? This is God's church and for his purposes. In fact, it was his choosing. This is the body of the elect. This is by virtue of not blood, genealogical blood or biological blood, or by virtue of institution or by, by voting, etc. This is all about God's sovereign choice. This is the body of the elect. Um, I have like this whole page on a mini excursus on election, which I'm going to not talk about. But I will say this. Um, election is one of those difficult topics. It's, yeah, it's a difficult topic for me, too, because like I, I am not, I do not stand in a, a long line, long tr- Christian tradition in my family. So it's hard. But... Election is talked about in the Bible. Um, Jacob Arminius, where we get the term Arminian, and not all Arminians are actually agree with Jacob Arminius on his beliefs, but Jacob Arminius's argument is that not that there's no election. He just believed that election was conditioned upon something, um, whereas Calvinists would say it is unconditioned or unconditional. Um, and, and attempts to say, well, no, God didn't elect, didn't, didn't elect individuals. He elected the church. Now, let me concede that for Ephesians 1 is, for instance, talking about God electing the church and not individuals. You still have the metaphysical problem of how and why certain people are, get in the church. So, as long as you have a sovereign God, you have, you have this issue with which to wrestle about election. But we don't have time to talk about that, so have fun trying to sleep tonight. <laughs> well, 
But uh, someone came after, up to me afterwards, and so, like, I love talking about this stuff. I mean, it's, it's interesting, and it's actually very applicable, so. But we have to remember that these, this, this is for his purposes. The church is for his purposes. And I think one of the cleanest ideas of trying to wrap your mind around what is the purpose of the church is talking about an inward purpose, an outward purpose, and an upward purpose. Inward, outward, upward. The inward purpose is discipleship, mutual edification, growing in Christ together. Outward is evangelism and some of the social helps that come alongside evangelism. And then upward is our ministry to God. So I, don't, I want to focus on that for a second, ministry to God. Let's focus on that. That application is really interesting. Worship... Like Sunday morning, it's a little bit about you. I think we think that it's supposed to be more about us. But worship is first and foremost about God. Like um, no one, like Craig, and I've tried out several times, I will not get a microphone to sing. No one would want that. I even do like things like I'll put my finger in the ear to make it look like I'm really serious, you know? So I'm, I'm not sure why they do that, but they do when they're singing, especially when I go high. Um, but like, no one wants me to do that, yet I am part, I am part of the worship service, you know? So th- this dawned on me, I, I, I sort of ate crow one day, this was years many years ago, enough that I can actually share the story with you because I, I think I'm over the problem. But um, at Cornerstone, like, I, I'll, I would do two theological conferences a year. And, and there's a lot of prep that goes into these, like writing a paper. And so I would take usually seven weeks in the fall, seven weeks in the spring, and, you know, I, I would do all my research during my office hours, in hope, hoping that people wouldn't actually drop by to talk to me. And then I would go on Saturday from like 2 or 3 p.m. to like 12 a.m. You know, and I, I would just had this, which is not, I mean, this is like the next day is church. Church. And so like 12, 12 a.m., I'd come up from my, you know, sort of dazed and confused from like 10 hours of researching and writing, put in, you know, get, make myself a nice big heaping bowl of ramen noodles and watch West Coast football. Then I'd go to bed at like 1.30 or 2, get up a little late, and then people tend to wake up when I wake up, and then like, then I'm starting like, like, you guys are late, and I'm like being cranky and yelling at people, get in the car, get in the car, like, why do you, I don't care, daddy doesn't care that you forgot this, and we pull in, no one's happy, no one's happy, but then we walk in and we're like, Hey, you know, like, hey, we were just praying at 6 a.m. and we just happened to get out, you know, it's now it's 9.05 and we're, just, we're a little late, but it goes for good reasons. And, um, and my blood pressure does not come down until like we're halfway through the worship set. And then the next day at school, I have to teach about the purposes of the church. And I'm like, gulp. So I've, I've rectified my ways. My kids still are tend to rush at the last minute. I always want to have their set all your stuff out the night before. 
and I don't have to move people along. But I mean, just thinking of the mindset we should be in. Now, I like to relax on Saturday, Saturday night prior to. I mean, this is Sunday. We've got to get ready. This is our thing, right? Go to bed early. Get up early. Don't sleep in. Sunday's not for sleeping in. Sunday's for church. Well, if that's where your church, where your church has church. Um, don't get bent out of shape if your favorite songs aren't played. Don't get bent out of shape if the guy who's talking from up front has a very distracting shirt. It's, it's from the Garden of Eden collection. Don't hate me because I'm beautiful, people. Don't hate. Oh, yeah, God's purposes. Remember, it's not about you. Let's talk about the communion of saints. First of all, saints are not people that have done miracles and that are venerated by the Roman Catholic Church. Um, no, saints, saints are just the holy ones. That's us. Believers that have bowed the knee to the Lord. Right? It's us. We're the saints. Christians. And what is communion? Well, this is not the, this is not the ordinance or the sacrament that we take part in on, um, on the first Sunday of every month. No, the communion is more about the interacting, interlaced body of believers. This is basically, communion of saints is basically synonym for, you know, the holy, the holy church. Uh, but perhaps communion of the saints has more of this aspect of a call to action, right? Maybe more of a call to action. I'm going to read question and answer 55 from the Heidelberg Catechism. Some of you may have heard that, heard of that document. It's a Reformation-era document. Um, and it's, it's uh, you know, even though that's not really exactly our tradition, it's pretty well respected by our tradition. Question. What do you understand by the communion of saints? Answer. First, that believers, all and every one, as his members have fellowship in the Lord Christ and in all his treasures and gifts. Secondly, that each one must know that he is bound to use his gifts readily and cheerfully for the benefit and salvation of other members. And that's the part I'm going to focus on a bit more. Secondly, that each one must know that he is bound to use his gifts readily and cheerfully for the benefit and salvation of the other members. I'm going to read from 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 4 through 11. Um, this has the same idea, and I wouldn't be surprised if they have, the writer of the Heidelberg Catechism had this in mind uh, when he wrote that answer. But it says this, Now there are varieties of gifts, but the same spirits. And there are varieties of service, but the same Lord. And there are varieties of activities, but it is the same God who empowers them all and everyone. To each. It doesn't say to the elders or to the deacons. Right? It says to each. To each one of you. Is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. For to one is given through the Spirit the utterance of wisdom. And to another the utterance of knowledge according to the same Spirit. To another faith by the same Spirit. To another gifts of healing by one, the one Spirit. To another, the working of miracles. To another, prophecy. To another, ability to distinguish between spirits. To another, various kinds of tongues. To another, the interpretation of tongues. 
All these are empowered by one and the same Spirit, who apportions to each, in, each one individually as he wills. Paul goes on to use this body imagery in 1 Corinthians 12. This imagery of the church as a body. And one can make an argument, well, he's talking about the universal church. I think probably there can be a good argument that this, he's referring to the local church, or at least it applies to the local church, because in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, he's talking about, he's censuring certain local churches for doing communion in the wrong way. Different communion. Um, but 1 Corinthians chapter 12 uses this body imagery. And so let me put this up before I forget. Scripture never envisions a disengaged member of the church. Um, you know, I, I remember, I think, it was, I think it was Jeff at one point, I think he was preaching through 1 Corinthians 12, and he talked about, like, if, you, if you're walking down the street and you see an eyeball on the ground, or a hand, you're like, oh my gosh, like, what, like, what happened? It's disastrous. Like, and you're actually looking around because, like, is that person still around, you know? But it's just so, it's just so weird to see something out of place like that. No, you have a part, you have a part to play in the body. You've been gifted in some way, shape, or form. But in this passage, Paul wanted to disabuse people of the idea that they were simply a pew filler. So again, even though no one's going to hand me the mic to sing, part of my job on Sunday morning is to sing to God's glory. Right? And even if you're not a good singer, like, I mean, even if you had, my daughters have good voices, but like, even if they didn't, if they came and wanted to sing a song in front of me, I'd be like, oh, like, even if it was horrible, you'd be like, and that's how uh, I feel God probably looks at me when I'm singing, you know? But I mean, that's part of our role. Our other role is that we have something else to play within the church. I, I don't know what that is, you know? And I think that's, it, it puts a little bur- bur- a burden on you and the church body to figure out what is your role? So actually, the marks of the church, what, it, what counts as a, a local church, according to the Reformed tradition, uh, traditional marks are the preaching of the word, sacraments, namely baptism, communion, and church discipline. I would add to that exercising of the gifts. I would. I'd add that in. I'd throw that in as a fourth mark. But that it requires you to apply your efforts and will. You've got to figure out, like, how do I get engaged? Right? Talk to an elder. Try things out. I tried out greeter one time. I was the worst greeter in the world. If you ever talk to me, I, sometimes I, I talk a little long. And I would do that at the front door. People are, like, going around me. They're not getting the bulletin. It was a mess. And I told Pete Giles, the elder at the time, you need to fire me. I'm not good at this. I'll do something else. And I found out what that was. But we need to figure out what, what is it that you do. Right? But it also requires a lifestyle of just being engaged. You've got to be engaged for people to be able to give you 
feedback, you've got to know the body. It's really easy to not know the body. The church is messy. The church is very, it can be messy. And there was this whole movement, this whole movement not long ago, um, where people wanted to put off the communion of the saints. There was, this, there, was this, there was this saying, I love Jesus, but I don't love the church. Anyone remember this? You even made it like in Christianity Today and stuff. But it's, it is easier. I've walked away. I, most Sundays I'm like, happy as can be. But there's some Sundays I'm like, that was traumatic. Or like, that should, like I, I, I wish that, wouldn't have, that conversation wouldn't have taken place. But it doesn't matter. I mean, and then, and then some people try to avoid it by they just sort of keep skirting. They never actually want to get it integrated. They just sort of want to stay on the fringes, right? Because it's easier. Because people are messy. As Spencer said, we're, we're newsflash. We're a bunch of sinners together. We have the Holy Spirit and we're trying to get better. His power. But not everything is easy. Not everything worth it is easy. So let me close with this. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 23. And I think this encapsulates this little bit of passage really well. 23, or Hebrews 10, 23. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. For he who promised is faithful. Let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works. Not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the the day drawing near.